Hi there, this is Dave Zabosky. I'm a former Disney animator and the CCO of Lytro.com. You're listening to Skull Rock Podcast coming directly from the islands of Peter Pan's Never Never Land. Skull Rock Podcast is brought to you by the generosity of the following companies. Sure, sound extraordinary. To podcasters, recording musicians, and streamers who are looking for studio-quality audio at home or on the road, the Shure MV7 Podcast Kit is a premium all-in-one solution inspired by the legendary Shure SM7B and is designed to address the versatility required by modern creators. For more on the Shure MV7 Podcast Kit, visit Shure.com, S-H-U-R-E.com, or click the link in our show notes. Shure, sound extraordinary. And by... The Old Mill Press, publishing beautifully crafted books that illuminate our world. To learn more, visit theoldmillpress.com and by listeners like you. Skull Rock Podcast, talking all things Disney with your hosts, El John Go and Dave Bossert. Welcome to Skull Rock Podcast, the show about all things Disney and pop culture. Every week, we take you behind the scenes of some of your favorite Disney films, theme park attractions, and all the other good stuff. Performances, books, music, streaming, what's in theaters? See, I, I try to change it up just a little bit every week. <laughs> I'm Al John Go, a musician, longtime Disney, Marvel, Star Wars, and pop culture fan. You can email me, aljohn, A-L-J-O-N, at skullrockpodcast.com. And I'm Dave Bossard, artist, filmmaker, author, and welcome to another edition of the Skull Rock Podcast. If you love Disney and pop culture, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. You can also like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can also email me at Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com. Uh, Al John, uh, we've got a great show today. We've got uh, Bill Farmer, the voice of Goofy and Pluto. And this part one of our conversation with him and Bill's such a, uh, a, a great talent and a great friend. Uh, I can't wait uh, to get, get to this. Yes. I'm, what a, what a kind individual. I remember meeting Bill at the D23 Expo um, several years ago. He's just the nicest, nicest guy and just a wealth of knowledge and great stories, of course. So I can't wait to delve in with Bill and talk about his career. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, talk about the uh, early, the foundation part of his career, you know, what really shaped him and formed him. Uh, There's some great stories. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it for sure. Hey, you know, we've got a lot going on this week. Uh, We're going to talk about the news here momentarily, but uh, have you gotten a chance to watch anything over this week? I mean, it's been a crazy week, hasn't it? Yeah, it has been a very crazy, busy week, but I did manage to squeeze in a few things. Okay, well, let's talk about it in their picks of the week hey, and and by the way i gotta tell you this past weekend was was the big 50th anniversary celebration at cal arts and wow. the alumni reunion weekend yes. you know and i i ran into a ton of people that i knew uh, or know from over the years mm-hmm. in animation and uh i gotta tell you I, quite a number of them said they loved the podcast and nice. of course i ran into a lot of our guest, you know previous guests that we've had on the show yes. were up there but i, I a couple of people came up to me and just said they, they really are enjoying this podcast. Right. And the fact is um, they love this segment. 
They love our banter about what we watch. <laughs> yeah. No, it's great. I mean, uh, that's part of it, of all of it. I mean, we have awesome interviews, no doubt, but it is nice to kind of delve into what the current state of streaming films and music and books and all that is. So uh, that's awesome. Yeah. I love that. So this week, I, I believe it or not, I managed to go during the week and I squeezed in a screening of Sisu. Oh, and if, oh. You, if you remember, we talked about the trailer a couple weeks ago uh, yes. that dropped in front of uh, John Wick Chapter Four. Yes, and I have to tell you, this movie delivered. Oh, this was an awesome movie. Now I have to tell I, I have to tell our listeners here. Here's the comparison. This this was sort of like a Clint Eastwood spaghetti western, right. like you know, say the High Plains Drifter. Okay. Right, right. And instead of being on the American plains, we're in the laplands of Finland. Okay. And right. we've we've got this lone guy, the lone wolf. Yes. And he's digging holes out in the Lapland and he's looking for gold. And he finally comes across this big vein of gold. Right. And after all this hard work, he, you know, digs it all out fills his saddlebags, loads up his horse and starts riding. He's got to go 500 miles to the bank. <laughs> right, and, right. <laughs> and and now this is 1944. Takes place in 1944. It's the end of World War II. The Nazis are losing and they've implemented a scorched earth policy in in this part of Finland. Mm -hmm. And our lone wolf encounters a Nazi patrol. <laughs> right. And let me tell you, I've never had more fun watching Nazis be destroyed. <laughs> That's what the <laughs> Which is one of the taglines. That's a tagline for the trailer. Yeah. And and another tagline for the trailer is glorious carnage. Oh. <laughs> That's right up my alley, Dave. I think that you know, funny, the the rest of your 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 uh, your com contemporaries there over there at uh, at the the studio, you know, they they listen to the show or whatnot and then they realize, you know, Al John is a real gore hound. <laughs> <laughs> loves horror movie. He loves, you know, with evil dead and all that. And then, you know, and then Disney he loves Disney too. But uh, yeah, Sisu, what a great trailer. And I'm glad. So you give it the thumbs up. Yes. I, I give it two thumbs up. I have yes. to tell you, I really enjoyed this, uh, this film, uh, very little dialogue. Imagine that. <laughs> and, 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 it, and it is mostly in English. There, there's a little subtitles towards the end when he enters the bank. Uh, but I have to tell you, every possible obstacle gets thrown in front of this guy mm. and he's got these Nazis trying to kill him and he takes them all out. It's it's absolutely incredible, you know, and and so I have to say uh, this was a very well made movie, too. Uh, so it, and it's a finished film. Uh, it, it really is terrific. And and it comes in at about an hour and a half. So it's not a very long movie. Oh, OK. It, it moves along nicely, but it really does. It really had this feel of those spaghetti Westerns, you know, the yeah. the good, the bad, the ugly for a few dollars more high plains drifter, you yeah. know, those kinds of films from the 60s. And this guy was sort of a Clint Eastwood character. Very few words. It was all about the eyes and the, the facial expressions, you know? 
Yeah, it it reminds me a lot of um oh what 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 were those movies with Charles Bronson, Death Wish? You know, you mess yes. with the wrong person, yeah. basically. You mess the, with the wrong person. And the Death, Death yeah. Wish movies, yeah. Yeah, I, I love I love that. But you know, you get what you pay for. I'm glad that it it came through for you, and I'm looking forward to seeing Sisu myself. So uh yeah. Yeah, what else did you check out this week? So so then uh, uh on uh Apple Plus a movie dropped. Now you would have probably have loved this movie just based on the cast because it stars Chris Evans. Um, yeah. And uh, I, I, I have to say when you look at the cast, right. Uh, it's Chris Evans. Uh, you got Dexter Fletcher, Adrian Brody, Ryan Reynolds does a cameo. Yeah. Mike Moe. Um, who else is in this? Uh, Tad Don, uh, Tate Donovan. Um, Sebastian Stan, right? Yep, the Winter yep. Soldier. Yeah, yeah they right? both get reunited. You know, like this. you're yeah. seeing all of these these cameos and people in this, uh, you know, in the cast, and you're like, "Holy mackerel! This this has to be a really good movie." This was the worst film. I've ever seen. I I mean, it was terrible. Oh, terrible. Terribly written, terrible dialogue, terrible direction. I mean, it it couldn't have been more terrible. I I actually, believe it or not, Al John, and I think I've mentioned this on one of our shows, Uh you know, I rarely would walk out of a movie and I, I I walked out of a movie like 30 some odd years ago called baby, the lost legend from Disney. (laughs) Right. And it was a free screening and and Nancy and I got up and left the theater, Uh you know, mid movie. It was so bad. Right. Yes. I actually thought about that movie when I was watching ghosted. Oh, that's horrible. You know, so uh, and, and, you know, look, I I, I have to say I had high hopes for this one and uh, it did not deliver. uh, And I can see why it premiered on a streaming service and not and had not gone to the movie theaters. That's a dang shame. So the, the, the premise of this film is basically I fell in love with a secret agent, right? Correct. You know, Chris Evans is like an organic farmer. Tate Donovan's his father, you know, and he falls, you know, he he meets this woman at a farmer's market. And it turns out she's like a, you know, top uh, secret agent, mm-hmm. you know, and he, he finds out that, you know, after he meets her, she's on a business trip. Uh, he's able to determine she's in London. So he flies to London to surprise her and then gets sucked into this espionage world and doesn't know what the heck is going on, gets Mm. kidnapped and all this kind of stuff. But, you know, it's like one minute they love each other. The next minute they hate each other. The next minute they love each other. The next minute they hate each other. I mean, it was just, it was laughable. Absolutely laughable. That's horrible. You know, but we sat through the entire thing because I wanted to bring a review to our listeners. <laughs> okay. The, 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 take, the way to take it for the team, Dave. There you go. I took a bullet for the team last week. Uh, and then, um, but I did watch the first episode of Citadel. Okay. Uh, which dropped on uh, Amazon Prime uh, and uh, has uh, Stanley Tucci in it. Right. I love that guy. I really enjoyed the first episode. Really yeah. a lot of action. 
Oh, good. A lot of action. So I really enjoyed that first episode. And then, of course, I was able to catch up uh, here and there on some episodes of Picard. And I'm about halfway through season two. Good. And I will again tell our I'll I'll tell you because you already know this, but I'll tell our listeners you don't have to be a Star Wars fan, uh, excuse me, a Star Trek fan. <laughs> two weeks in a row, Dave. <laughs> yeah, row. You don't have to be a Star Trek fan to uh, to really get into this movie. This is a beautifully done series. Yeah, it is so cinematic. It's so textured and has so much depth, and it's well written, and it is just a good, good series. So, uh, again, I'm halfway through season two uh, and I'm thoroughly enjoying it still. And then I, I, I was able to watch an episode of uh, Animal Control with Joel McHale. Very nice. Very funny series. I mean, it's really a, a, a fun show. Love it. I love it. What about you? What have you been watching? Well, we're finishing up you on Netflix flicks and this we're we're up to uh, finishing. We finished the penultimate episode of this season. I believe this may be, I think they may have announced one more season of the series you, but it has, it's been riveting, but I can tell you that maybe some of the formula is, is getting a little tired because they had two seasons of it already. And I think sometimes when you go back to the well of some of these conventions of these established characters and you I feel like they basically transplanted the show from where it was. It was in New York and then it was in LA. Now it's in London. It's like, yeah, okay. So it's the same. You're basically telling me it's the same story over and over again. So it's kind of, it's getting a little tired. I'm hoping that the next season gives us some fresh plot twists and different things like that, because I think it's the character acting is brilliant and I think it's well-written, but I'm getting a little, getting a little uh, tired. Uh, okay. It's becoming repetitive. It's huh? becoming repetitive. What is not becoming repetitive is I've been reading a book, Dave, and, and you're going to love this. Uh, it's not dead yet, which is Phil Collins' um, story. So this is his autobiography. And, awesome. You know, we've talked about Phil Collins and his connection with Disney over the course of several films during the Golden Age, and this is a great memoir. If you love Genesis, you love Phil Collins. It, it talks about the the struggles that he had he had growing up and his family of course moving into his bands and his uh, career in stage and theater as well as being a drummer how Genesis was formed and how things kind of collapsed <laughs> yeah. and working with uh, his uh, heroes like Eric Clapton and uh, George Harrison which was there's a hilarious aside where he was 19 years old. I think Genesis was just starting out with Peter Gabriel and he was called in to do a session for the Beatles who had just recently broke up. But George Harrison was doing a solo record with Ringo and he was called in to play congas and he recorded at Abbey road. Of course he's a drummer and not a percussionist. So he is very new, but he's surrounded by all these great players, great A-list players in Abbey Road. And of course they're in the control room and he was so young. He was so nervous that he was chain smoking and he was playing congas and his hands started bleeding all over the place because they kept on having him do the thing, you know, the, the session over and over and over again. Yeah. And then come to find out then when he bought, he got his little check and then got the record, his name was scrubbed from the credits. Wow. So come to find out, 
they didn't even use his his uh, his percussion parts for that song, uh. and it was taunting him for thirty years. Come to find out that later on, George Harrison had found out that Phil was on the record and sent him a tape of his performance and said, "Oh, is this you, Phil?" And he listened to the cassette and. He was like, oh, my God, this is God awful. I'm overplaying and everything. And at the end of the cassette, this is a great, great story. At the end of the cassette, he, the producer that he knows, a well-renowned producer, and George were talking. He goes, um, yeah, that, 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 that's enough. You know, we'll cut, cut right here. And, you know, and then you hear the controller. And it's like basically saying that it was a crappy take, basically. A crappy take. And then Phil was like, my God, they that's why, that's why. Because in his mind, the entire time he's been thinking about, why am I not on this record? Why am I not on it? Why wasn't I credited? Come to find out that the tape that George Harrison sent him back was something they recorded the night before, just them just messing around with the, the bongos and everything. And that it wasn't, you know, they just went another direction of the song. So the entire time he was psyching himself out, and they played a trick on him and sent him a tape that they just made of just some random bongo playing that it was horrible. <laughs> and he says, well, I can, I can understand now my bongo playing was horrible, you know, but the entire time, you know, he called up, uh, George, I think he called him up like, uh, like a, a day later and said, Hey, did you get that tape, Phil? And he goes, yeah, yeah, I got it. He goes, you know, we just made that up for you, you know, <laughs> but apparently they remastered the record and he ended up being on the record. Oh, that's that's a great story. But yeah, it's just, uh, and then of course, you know, Phil in, in the book calls him a bastard because he played a joke <laughs> on him. He's been tormented this entire time for thirty years. But I think this is a great book if you love Phil Collins like I do. Um, this is a, a great book. Check out Not Dead Yet. You can check it out at Pendum Random House, and you can pick it up where uh, finer books are sold, like Dave's book. But it's definitely worth the read because he's just a fascinating individual. And what a great book. So uh, check out Not Dead Yet, Phil Collins. Hey, you know, I, I think, Al John, we should add a book uh, segment uh, periodically Okay, when we, when we read a good book. Well, there you go. I, we, I try. We, we should do that. We should do that. Absolutely. Well, I, I'd be curious to hear what our listeners have to say. Would you let, uh, you know, let us know. Would you would you like to hear about some of the books we're reading? Yeah. And, and I, you know, I I read all the time. Yeah. And I'm, I'm reading. I'm reading a great book right now. How Creativity Rules the World. Oh, that's great. Uh, by Maria Brito. That's great. I think I think we should. We talk about, you know, books yeah. on the show on occasion. And I think it's great. Uh, I do have a couple more books in my queue that that I'm reading um, some good stuff. And, you know, I tend to read a lot about music, um, music and, and some you know aspirational figures. But, um, you know, on occasion, I'll, I'll, I very rarely read fiction these days. Very rarely. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I'm, I, you know, look, I'm the same way. Uh, I, I read mostly nonfiction, mm -hmm. mostly, you know, occasionally I, I you know, I, I read some fiction, mm -hmm. but uh, mostly nonfiction. I'm, I, I've been reading some very good books and a lot of history books and things like that. Yeah, so I said we do it. Yeah, maybe, maybe we'll do it. Yeah, All absolutely. Right? We, we have to get we have to get a better bumper, though, for uh, what we're watching. I know I and, need to send and, that. And, I need and, to send that and in. Then we, yeah. And we have to do a bumper for uh, for our books. Then. The book club. OK, the book. Yeah, club. The, we'll do yeah it. the Skull Rock Book Club. I'm going to I'll yeah. send it in. I'll send it in to get to get made. No problem. We'll do it. All 
All right. Absolutely. Great. Skull Rock Podcast. This week in Disney and pop culture. All right, Dave, check this out. Whoever it was that you were in love with, it sounds more like her. Her? Do not bring me into this. (gasps) Knock it off! What? You never noticed how black your eyes were. Hello, Mike. I think that is a great clip. Guardians of the (laughs) Galaxy 3. The uh, Karen Gillan, first of all, is wonderful. Chris Pratt, Zoe Saldana. They are back in theaters on May 5th. May the 5th be with you. (laughs) It's kind of right after Star Wars Day. Uh, Kind of apropos, this is the final installment of this particular uh, group of Guardians of the Galaxy for the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Hey, they uh, recently had a uh, red carpet for the movie and press is out super early. I think they, you know, they understand Marvel has got a lot of working. uh, They're working from the back these days, you know, um, the past few years during the pandemic, Marvel's kind of been a little scattershot, but I think they're trying to uh, get their game plan and and get people hyped up to see the film. Uh, How about a couple clips from the red carpet, Dave? Shall we uh, launch into some of these? Let's talk a little bit. Uh, to Chris Pratt, star of the film Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 that is going to be in theaters later this week. Let's check it out. Man, I've been looking forward to tonight for so long. The the world premiere for, for us, this is the first time I'll have seen the movie in its entirety. I've been intentionally waiting for it tonight to be surrounded by my friends, my families here at the Dolby Theater in Los Angeles. This is what it all comes down to. It's our night to celebrate, uh, that you can feel the excitement uh, amongst uh, me and all our friends and the cosplayers here, but also having traveled around the world, uh, from, uh, from around the world. People are really excited for this movie. Yeah, 10 years, the final chapter of, a, of, of an extraordinary journey, the turning of a page, uh, and truly the end of an era. You know, uh, it's funny when you have these red carpet interviews. We used to do a lot of them uh, for, for Disney back in the day. And the celebrity, the way they talk as they go from press junket to press junket is yeah. hilarious. And you can tell Chris is like trying to get all the points out as he can yeah, for the yeah. past 10 years. But um, so much great stuff has been said about the movie, Dave. I mean, you saw the trailers uh, upcoming. I, I mean, I've, I'm I've seen multiple for- trailers on this film. It, it looks fantastic. What I keep f- sort of having trouble wrapping my brain around is that this is the end for this crew. And yeah, yeah, but I, 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 you know, it's such a great cast. It's a wonderful cast, you know, that I want more, you know, and maybe that's what they want you to do. They want, they want to leave it, leave the audience wanting more and that's it, you know, and that's, that's not a bad thing, but uh, I, I just find it hard to believe that they're just ending it with chapter three. It's a great ensemble. I think they have wonderful chemistry and I really I really hated the fact that James Gunn is moving to DC because he, I think he has so much to offer and it's, it's just a real shame, but you know, what has done, what's done is done. Speaking of James Gunn, uh, let's go ahead and maybe uh, look to him. Uh, We've got some, another great clip here. Let me see if I can get this clip up here for James Gunn. And, you know, now this is his last project that he's promoting with Marvel and Marvel studios to be able to come here and celebrate our time together. Not only having made this movie, but all of us together for over 10 years, having made the entire, you know, trilogy of films is an amazing experience. And I just cannot wait to get in there and watch the movie with everybody. 
You know, I really love the, the, you know, Rocket's backstory, and so I'm excited about people being able to see that, to meet these other characters, Floor and Teefs and Lila, you know, so there's just, I'm excited just for people to see the movie and, you know, you know say goodbye along with us. You know, it's been said that this uh, trilogy of Guardians movies really has to deal with James Gunn and his upbringing, um, Peter Quill being the surrogate for himself. Uh, dealing with his family issues, his mother dying at an early age in the first part, the second part, the strained relationship that he had with his father. And then this particular installment of the the movie gaining acceptance and knowing family and accepting for, you know, accepting yourself for who you are. And I think that's what great directors and writers do. I think they draw on their personal experiences. It comes out in their work and uh, guardians of the galaxy to me has always been a film franchise that has a lot of heart. So I'm looking forward to seeing uh, the last bit of, of this particular uh, series of films. So, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I'm looking forward to it. It's a great cast. And I, I think James Gunn is a great filmmaker. I you think know, so too. I, I'm, I'm just looking forward to seeing what he does with DC now. I, I am, too. And, uh, you know, I, we're going to be talking about DC in just a little bit. But uh, let's talk about Disney's Wish. So the trailer had come out. A few days ago, right now it's near about 4.5 million views on uh, YouTube. Uh, the Wish movie—it's been something that they've been working on since Paperman, so it's been—it's been in development for quite some time now. But this is a musical comedy that welcomes audiences to Rosas, a fantastical and a fantastical land located off the Iberian Peninsula. Our heroine Asha lives in Rosas, known as the Kingdom of Wishes. And Chris Buck is a director, um, and he says, uh, people from everywhere come to give their wishes to a magical king who promises to grant them their deepest desires someday. Only he can decide which wishes will come true and when. Um, Dave, it looks to me like a very hybrid kind of you know, uh, return to Disney-style uh, animation. You said it was kind of like a mixture of Rapunzel-esque um, you know, kind of uh, animation. It's kind of 2D uh, looking, but uh, also computer generated. It's interesting, Dave. Yeah, you know, I I watched the trailer and I was sort of meh. You know, I I felt like the lead character's design was very reminiscent of Elsa, Anna uh, from Frozen, uh, uh, Rapunzel from Tangled. Uh, you know, it was, it was almost, you know, similar, similar, uh, head, eye relation, you know, shapes and, uh, and, you know, the only difference was the skin tone and the, uh, color of the hair. Right. Um, you know, and, and some of the scenes in the trailer, they felt derivative of other things and maybe that's what it's supposed to be. I don't know. Uh, I didn't really get that much from it. What I really was taken aback uh on was the name of the king king magnifico mm -hmm. you know and i don't know i it, it, you couldn't come up with a better name <laughs> i don't know i don't you know, know I, I, is... I don't know what the reasoning was behind it you know so what, what do i know yeah i don't i don't know either but it definitely has a storybook quality uh yeah. to it where it, it looks beautiful yeah it, it absolutely looks beautiful you know, I mean, without question, my, the first, when you asked me initially what my thoughts were, I also shared the same like, uh, man, I was more excited when they talked about the premise of it with some art uh, at the D23 Expo several years back. 
I see. But they are writing that from the studio that brought you Frozen, from the studio that brought you Beauty and the Beast, from the studio that brought you all these, you know, awesome movies. It's like they're really trying hard to get these people to associate this with classic Disney storytelling. Maybe the character design harkens back to that. As you said, Dave, it's that shorthand of like, oh, okay, this seems familiar to me. To try to get people back to to the in the uh the box office back into the theater, you know I I don't know but there there was a time when Disney films, you know had uh, you know they had their shared uh, DNA but they also had very different art styles. I mean Emperor's New Groove is much different than Pocahontas, which is different than The Little Mermaid, and so you could see that they were trying to tell different stories, but the art style was very distinct, you know, um, between the films. So uh, there's a bit of a derivativeness going on lately. I, I, you know, I pointed that out with Encanto when Encanto uh, released, Mm -hmm. you know, the whole opening of Encanto is, uh, you know, our, our, you know, uh, protagonist uh, singing as she goes through the town. I mean, that, that, I, I mean, as soon as I saw that, I just thought of Belle uh, singing and going through the town in Beauty and the Beast at yeah. the beginning of Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, and I and I think part of that is also the influence of this next generation by the generation or generations that preceded it, right? Yeah, I, I think so, a lot of the filmmakers, the, the the and artists that are working there today, grew up on those movies, exactly. you know, Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast and Lion King and Aladdin and whatnot. Yeah. You know? Yeah, so, I mean, it's interesting. I guess we'll just have to wait and see what Wish uh, has to deliver. When's that dropping? In November, November, right? Oh, yeah, November 22nd. So this is... Oh, so they're they're doing Thanksgiving. This is the Thanksgiving Disney release, as they they normally do. Well, fingers crossed it doesn't uh, do a face plant like Strange World. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing it myself. Uh, So the dragon uh, over Disneyland during the Fantasmic show has oftentimes... uh, (laughs) broke down uh unfortunately but this time out this past week disneyland's phantasmic fireworks had flames erupting from the 45 foot tall animatronic dragon no injuries were reported according to kbc dave um you know this this kind of stuff happens occasionally (laughs) and and, you know the thing i would say when when it does happen it's usually pretty spectacular you know like like like, you know the dragon maleficent going up in uh in in flames you know but but you got to realize that's coming out of a um uh you know it's it's coming out of a uh a box if you will on tom sawyer island so, you know, you've got a whole, you know, Rivers of America uh, dividing the audience from that. Uh, and, uh, you know, look, uh, I, I the one thing I will say about the Disney Park system, Al John, uh-huh. and you know this. Tens of millions of people go through those parks. Yes. Right. Yes. Annually. And to have a little mishap, you know, and they want zero mishaps, but to have a little mishap once in a while, yeah, it, it just happens, you know, and nobody got hurt. Yes. Uh, and it must have been a pretty spectacular thing to see. And some of the comments I, I, I heard from guests who were there, uh, they thought initially it was part of the show. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So, 
you know, even the mishaps are entertaining. As Paris Hilton would say, <laughs> that's hot. Uh, There's a big fireball. People began pushing people out, said Ryan Lux of 2828 from L.A., who was an annual pass holder who watched the show when the fire broke out. At one point, there was a fireball. He said there was a lot of debris that fell from the prop. Shortly thereafter, uh, the the fire subsided. They they turned the fire down. The employees turned on a water feature part of the show, and the crowd erupted in cheers. So uh, how about that? You know, another another awesome fiery moment there at the Disneyland Resort. Absolutely. Uh, well, speaking of fire, let's check out what's going on with the DeSantis versus Disney lawsuit that's going on right now. It seems like Disney is now suing. Ron DeSantis over the Florida special district the entertainment giant says it was left with no choice, but to sue to protect itself from the retaliation of expressing a little political viewpoint. This comes from the Hollywood reporter, Dave. Um, Yeah. Well, you know something I have to tell you uh, uh, from all the articles I've read about this, um, this is, this is going to blow back on, on uh, governor DeSantis because now that a lawsuit's been filed, uh, Disney uh, can, you know, get discovery on uh, emails, internal letters, documents, yep. you know, all of this stuff. And they have a pretty strong case, uh, uh, not only on a First Amendment basis, but also, you know, again, from what I'm reading, uh, they have a, a, a pretty strong case uh, on uh, the fact that the state government is retaliating. Uh, against Disney for something they 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 a public statement, and you know there there's twenty five thirty other companies in Florida who also came out against uh, the uh, don't say gay bill as it's being called, mm-hmm. and um, nothing's being done to those other companies. The only reason why DeSantis singled out Disney is because it's his global entertainment enterprise and he's making national news because he's going to launch his presidential uh, run. But as I said last week, Al John, um, could you imagine DeSantis as president escalating uh, with another country? I mean, he'd escalate us right into World War Three. Should have quit while he was ahead. Yeah, I think this is going to be really interesting now because, you know, once the Disney attorneys start, uh, you know, seeking discovery of everything under the sun that they need for their case, uh, there's going to be a lot of stuff coming out on this. Well, he's had every opportunity to back away from from this and simply let (laughs) sleeping dogs lie, as as it were. Yeah, but. You know, it's it's one of those things you push will push harder. You just you leave us no choice. Basically, if you're going to push Disney into a corner, they're they're going to respond in kind. So, hey, listen, if you poke the bear hard enough, you're going to get mauled. There you go. There you go. You're going to get a cocaine bear right there. That's you're going to get. <laughs> yeah. Ch- check out the show from a month ago. Uh, Disney teases Haunted Mansion with extended spooky scene at CinemaCon. You know, Dave, uh, I, we didn't even talk about it, but. CinemaCon happened last weekend, yeah. and there was a lot of interesting stuff going on, and we didn't even touch base on all the Star Wars news or the Sony news with Spider-Man and Marvel, 
That's because it uh, was overwhelming. There was so lot. much of it. <laughs> There's a lot. There's a lot. And I guess we're going to have to save that for another day. But uh, the studio debuted new footage of the Justin Seaman directed film at CinemaCon in Las Vegas three months ahead of its uh, July 28th release for Haunted Mansion. And there's a picture of Jamie Lee Curtis there. And uh, Jamie Lee uh, going to be uh, doing a, a pretty big role there in the film as Madame Leota. It should be really cool. Hey, I saw this trailer and I loved it. You know, again, when we talk about trailers, this trailer delivers. It tells me everything I need to know about this movie and it gives me some great visuals and it's a really well done trailer. Please don't make it bad. Just please don't make it suck. Please. Can I just ask? I I think it looks really good. good. And Listen, Danny DeVito's in it. Jamie Lee Curtis is in it. Come uh, on. Well, hey, look, you said that about that movie uh, with uh, Chris Evans earlier. You have a great cast, and it's like, please don't mess it up. But, yes, Rosario Dawson as Gabby. You've got Travis, which is played by Chase Dillon. Owen Wilson as Kent is in there. Tiffany Haddish is in there. Danny DeVito, Jamie Lee Curtis, who plays Manny Maliota. And one of my favorites, Jared Leto as Hatbox Ghost. There's also appearances with Renona Ryder, Dan Levy, and Hazan Minjad. And there's like a bunch of really great actors in this. Please don't mess it up, please. Well, listen, I, I all I'll say is from the trailer, it looks fantastic. I'm looking forward to seeing it. All right. Speaking of James Gunn, you know, uh, he is now taking, uh, well, taking a bow at Marvel, and he is helming things at the DC universe there um, with all those DC films. So the competitor, if you will. And of course, DC universe arrived at CinemaCon this past Tuesday with Warner brothers looking to the future as it rolls out three films made by the previous regime. I think there was some heavy, heavy editing going on, but the flash, which is um, being released on June 16th, the blue beetle, August 18th and Aquaman lost kingdom being um, released here at Christmas time. Uh, All three of these are going to be stunning cinematic masterpieces. Well, that's what they say. I can tell you that I'm hyped about The Flash because they not only have The Flash from the Marvel versus Superman and and, uh, uh, Justice League films, but it looks like they're bringing back Michael Keaton. It's not uh, a secret, but... um, you know, this last trailer that they released looked pretty awesome. Don't you think they, and, and, and by the way, that three minute trailer, almost three minute trailer. Uh, I just saw at the head of Sisu yeah. last week and, and I saw that in the movie theater and, and it just looks so good. It looks good. You yeah. know? And, uh, yes, Michael Keaton is in it. Uh, Ben Affleck is in it. Two different Batmans, two different Batmans, but also the premises, you know, the timeline, yeah, the universe, you know, the multiverse, another multiverse of man. Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, look, based on the trailer, it looks fantastic. It certainly does. So we will we will be following this. I can't wait. I've got so many movies in the queue, Dave. I can't I can't wait to check it out. OK, so now we are in this um, the talking about animation and stuff that may be not derivative, not so derivative, but Netflix animation reveals three different films or several different films uh, coming out this year. And Dave, I have to say, now you see I'm, I'm using your line. I have to say, Dave, that mm-hmm. these look um, very, very unique, very interesting, very interesting animation uh, for all these. Dave, uh, let's talk about it a little bit. You have some friends working on these projects, I'm sure. 
Oh, absolutely. You know, there's a lot of great animation going on across Hollywood at a lot of different studios, you know, and, uh, you know, Netflix has really built up a great animation department. Mm -hmm. One of those announcements is SpongeBob SquarePants. I don't know if you saw the last SpongeBob movie, Dave, but I I see every SpongeBob movie. Saving Bikini Bottom, the Sandy Cheeks movie. Uh, that looks very interesting. I love, I love the humor in it. There's a movie called in your dreams. That looks, uh, very Pixar esque, if you will. We yes. have a, when you have some, a name like that, you, you, you think of those, uh, those, um, existential, uh, humanistic issues that you deal with when you, when it comes to that, it reminds very much of a Pixar film. And then you also have, um, the summer release of Nimona based on the graphic novel by N.D. Stevenson. And it looks interesting as well. Dave, it uh, looks like they're on the precipice of, of, of uh, doing really good things with their animation stuff. Yeah. You know, they're, they're it's just, you know, uh, in the scheme of things, they're relatively new, but uh, they've got a, they've got a really solid team over there. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I would, I would sit there and say, Hey, you know, uh, this is, uh, it, it's going to be interesting to see what, what they come out with. For sure. This week in our regrets, uh, Jerry, Sp- yes, Dave. What, before we go to our regrets, yeah. I, I think it's, I think we have to mention this, but Super Mario Brothers oh. has crossed a billion dollars at the box <laughs> office globally. That's a billion true. dollars. Truth. In Truth. like three weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Chris I mean, Pratt. That's un- it's unbelievable. I'm actually going to go see it in the movies. I want to see it as well. And yeah. uh, it's in my, it's in my queue to, to go check out. I, I go to, I, this is my process. I go to IMDb every week and I bookmark films that I want to check out. And when I have an opportunity, I, I definitely will. And I think um, Chris and I will definitely be checking out some films this week. But you got to think Chris Pratt is just rolling in the dough right now. You've got Mario, which is doing great for him. Another franchise film. I think they're going to do sequel after sequel, I'm sure, with Chris Pratt. But then, you know, Guardians is coming out, too. So this is the year for Chris Pratt, I think. Big, there you go. Big year. There you go. All right. And uh, regrets this week. You know, Dave, I, I find that Jerry Springer is uh, you grow up watching those those crazy TV shows that he hosted. And he has just been a personality. He's been an America's Got Talent. He's been on, you know, uh, so many different shows uh, as one of America's most controversial talk show hosts, if you will. He passes away at the age of 79. The former Cincinnati politician remained defiantly unapologetic about what he did for a living. Understood. Um, Dave, do you have any any thoughts about Jerry Springer and uh, the Jerry Springer show? I mean, it was always, you know, I, I have to say if Jerry Springer had done his show in today's time frame, <laughs> you'd be able to see on Twitter and you know, YouTube and stuff, you know, all of those crazy moments where guests were attacking one another and throwing chairs and all of that kind of stuff, you yes. know, much more readily than back in the nineties, you know, I, yeah, this, this was a reflection of pop culture in the nineties. It's uh, it's been around for three, it launched in 1991 and can was canceled in 2018. Finally, 
It is on the list of the worst shows from TV Guide, the worst shows in the history of television, uh, beating out such dubious shows as Cheaters and Temptation Island. Uh, I think the show in and of itself started out as being a Phil Donahue kind of very um, focused show on issues, and later it found its footing with the controversial shows where they brought on you know, all these other people and mixing oil and water together and seeing them combust on stage. Um, yeah. And that was kind and, of, yeah. and, and you know, they always had the audience, you know, I, I mean, when the audience was on their feet screaming and cheering for these fights, Oh, you know, and uh, and it was almost like it was a, it was a wrestling a WWE match. wrestling yeah. match. Exactly. Yeah. You, yeah. Was, you stole the words right out of my mouth. I mean, you know, there's a reason why the WWE had Jerry Springer host uh, their show many times <laughs> and be on the Hall of Fame ceremony and all this because he loved professional wrestling. There's no doubt that that the type of vaudeville, uh, you know, it's not fake. <laughs> Come on, Al John. It's not fake. But, you know, they would cast these characters in yeah, uh, yeah. to do the show. But, uh, you know, I think he will be missed because ultimately he parlayed that that show and that platform to, to spawn a whole bunch of other shows that had the same kind of format. And he ended up being a host, the ringleader for America's Got Talent for a number of years, being the host. And I think he was a great host for that. I mean, I think he's a, you know, he will be missed for sure because he is, uh, at the end of the day, he is an entertainer and he put on entertaining shows. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, something the TV guide could call it uh, the worst show on television, uh, you know, all they want. Uh, uh, Springer got high ratings because people tuned in. It's like you can't look away from the train wreck. No. No, you know, people watched Maury Povich to to see people whose baby's daddy is who, whatever. Yeah, you know? and people tune into Oprah because she's wacky and she did all these other things. Or Doctor Phil, well, you you knew exactly what you're going to turn into to see Jerry Springer for sure. Something was going to happen. Yeah, and he delivered. He, he delivered. delivered. He you delivered. Know? All right. right. Well, rest in peace. It right. was quick too. He got, you know, he he was diagnosed I think three three or four months ago with pancreatic cancer. Yeah. Yeah, it's you know, a, very sad. Yeah, very sad. Horrible way to go. Uh, Jeannie Newhart, wife of Bob Newhart, dies at the age of 82. The couple recently celebrated their 60th wedding anniversary, and that clever dream ending for Newhart was her idea. I did not know that. I, I didn't um, know that until I read the obituary. Wow, that's pretty cool. Because, you know, I mean, Bob Newhart had been a staple of TV from the 70s and the 80s. And, uh, you know, and she was part of that uh, last bit of the uh, the Newhart show on CBS. It's been around for a long, long time. That was kind of a very surprising take on the who shot Jr. kind of situation, basically, um, with Dallas. But she passed away at the age of 82. Um, not only was she an actress, but, uh, you know, it's one of those stories where boy meets girl and ends up staying with girl for a long, long time. Yeah. And you know something, uh, what a great ending to that, uh, that new heart show where he was the innkeeper and the last episode they, they wake, he wakes up in bed next to Suzanne Plachette, who was his wife from the previous Previous. series where he was a shrink, right? The Bob Newhart show, the Bob Newhart show. So I, I, you know, look, uh, what a, what a, what great entertainment that was. And uh, it's, it's sad to see her go. And, and Bob Newhart is still with us. He's in his nineties. Yeah. Yeah. Well, how about this gang? 
Harry Belafonte, singer, actor, producer, activist, dies at the age of 96. He made Calypso music a phenomenon with Deo and received the Gene Hershaw Humanitarian, uh, Humanitarian uh, Award, uh, a Lifetime Achievement Grammy Award winner, battled injustice around the world. You know, Harry Belafonte, I, I have fond memories because of The Muppet Show. And yeah. I really, really love that. Um, and I've, I've got it on DVD, grew up with it. Uh, Dave, you know, I know him as a singer. A lot of people these days know him as an activist. Um, we just know him as a great entertainer. Right, Dave? Exactly. I mean, talk about an incredibly storied life. Uh, you know, the fact that, you know, he was friends with Martin Luther King, Dr. King, and, you know, was a singer, a performer, an actor, an activist. I, I mean, it just an incredible life. And by the way, you know, when you think of, you know, um, uh, Bahamian actors, a lot of people think immediately of Sidney Poitier. Mm -hmm. uh, but Harry Bal Balafonte was from the Bahamas as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, he leaves behind a lot of great work. You know, so uh, please check it out. He's Broadway actor. He's been in so many different um, films to date. So, How many records did he make? He made a ton of records. Man, you know, back in the it was day, like, Dave, like thirty records or something, right? There was a point where artists would release records like nine months within each other. Some years they'd have two records even come out. Yeah, um, and that was just the way things were back in entertainment, you know, you, you record a record, you'd release it, you tour it, you go back in the studio and do it all over again. And uh, so, yeah, he has, his catalog of music is absolutely huge, but um, you know, I'll never forget him being on the Muppet show singing Deo. And uh, a lot of people will remember him from that, but uh, there's so much more to explore. Harry Belafonte. What a great life. Yep. Rest and, in peace. Rest in peace. And now, it's time for our featured interview. Sit back and relax. Check out our sit-down interview with the voice of Pluto, the voice of Goofy, Bill Farmer on Skull Rock Podcast. Let's do it. Skull Rock Podcast. Interview time. Well, Al John, once again, you know, we have got a fantastic guest. We've got Disney legend, uh, the voice of Goofy and Pluto, Bill Farmer in the house here at the Skull Rock Studios. Bill, welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast. Oh, well, Dave, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm glad to be here. You know, I got to tell you, Bill, uh, it has uh, it's been a while. I think I, I think the last time I've actually seen you in person was before the pandemic. I think it has been. Yeah, well, that shut down a lot of people. A yeah. lot of things have been uh, uh, done on Zoom in the last couple of years. Yeah, and, and absolutely. Like and I got to tell you, I I, I was really uh, excited uh, when we booked you on the show because uh, we have so much to talk about. Uh, yeah, it's been a, a long time. And yeah. We have a long history together too. So yeah, a lot of, a lot of cartoons and things. That's right. And just for our listeners to know, I, uh, Bill and I have worked together for many years, uh, over the years, uh, doing, uh, various projects and, uh, and we've traveled a little bit. We we've been on cruise ships together and things like that. We'll talk about that later, sure. but I, I really want to, uh, start with where did it all start for you? How, how did you yeah. get into, cause, cause 
you weren't always the voice of Goofy and Pluto. No, but, you, you, that's not something you normally. Yeah, there's no Goofy 101 in college. Right. Yeah. So how, how did you how did you start in, in, in the business? Where did you grow up? How did you go to school? What were you studying? All of those fun things. Well, uh, if I go back to my, you know, uh, to Kansas, I actually grew up in South Central Kansas, a little town named Pratt, Kansas, west of Wichita, about 70 miles. We had wheat and tornadoes, and that was about it in those days. And I was just one of those kids that ever since, as far back as I can remember, I was enamored with movies and cartoons on television, and I just... You know, maybe it was because there wasn't a whole lot to do in Kansas that I kind of found my escape at the movie theater. And on Saturdays, we'd always get these little tickets at, at uh, our elementary school where you could go every day during the summer for a double feature and the Three Stooges and cartoons. And that just kind of became my escape from the humdrum of reality. And I found that I had a propensity for doing voices with a lot of the actors uh, on screen, and I would practice them around the house. And I, my friends liked that, and I would, uh, you know, come to dinner and like act like I was John Wayne or something. And well, mom, let's put those mashed potatoes in a circle and. Let's ask some green beans. And my dad was looking at me like, what's wrong with this kid? You know, it's just, just a fun thing. Um, and I got known for that around school, especially in high school, where I do pep assemblies as different characters and impressions. Well, um, even then, I would love to, uh, I wanted to go to Hollywood and to get in the movie business. And I can remember the movie that really got me interested in the whole showbiz thing was uh, one called uh, uh, The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, Ray Harryhausen, yeah. late 50s. I think it's one of his first color movies. And I remember seeing that at the theater uh, and there were like cyclops and dragons and fighting skeletons. And it was just magical for me. And I thought, wouldn't that be cool to be able to work in an industry like that? Never thinking in a million years that it could actually happen. Well, long story short, I went to the University of Kansas, got a degree in broadcast journalism, and I kicked around in radio for a number of years because that's the closest thing that I really had a chance of doing uh, that was related to show business was just being a DJ on the old playing stacks of wax all day <laughs> in little uh, country stations. And I did that in Oklahoma and Kansas and Texas. And I would uh, invent characters just because little podunk stations like that, they don't really care too much what you do. If you just get an audience and you play the commercials and you read the news, then everything else can kind of be up to you. So I would bring in, since they were country stations, I'd bring in people like Mr. Haney on Green Acres and <laughs> Bill, we're having a good day here and we're going to go out to the sale barn and they're going to be a selling cows and Hey, it's great to see you, Pat. How are you doing? And I would just do these little, little uh, improv skits uh, again, just for the heck of it. Um, 
Well, I got out of radio because there wasn't a whole lot of money in that in, at the time. And Can, can I ask you a question yeah. about the radio? Because you said you were in Oklahoma and yes. Texas and you, you move around. I, I've noticed from listening just to my local radio stations that, you know, you'll have a DJ or a couple of DJs on for a period of time and then they disappear one day. Is it all just ratings driven? And and are you being in those told? days? Yeah. In those days, it was now it's much more automatic than it was because we actually had physical turntables, played physical records, all of that kind of stuff. Now it's generally pre-taped and and different. Uh, there are more networks and they have kind of almost not AI, but they have DJs doing the intros to the records, but then it's just done automatically. There's not a live DJ. Now, small stations do still have that, but it was a great training ground Um for someone, I didn't know that I was training to be a voice actor, but it was great training for me. Um, and yes, generally they moved around a lot, just trying to get a better job. Oh, that one pays $5 more a, a week, you know, so it's a much bigger jump for my career and I'll move to another station. So I was in Frederick, Oklahoma, um, you know, uh, Bonham, Texas, a little town north of Dallas, uh, it was a tiny little 500 watt station is where I began at. Wow. I went back to my hometown in Pratt, Kansas, which is a 5,000 watt AM station. Kind of got tired of that, went to Dallas uh, to learn. Basically, it was learn uh, kind of a parallel career as an electronic technician. Um, I knew enough to get a uh, electronics. I'd studied it in college a little bit, and I was new enough to get a, a first class FCC license. So I was not only an on air personality, I was the guy that took care of the transmitter and did the data logs and all of that. Broken equipment would fix that kind of thing. But I realized I didn't know what the heck I was doing because I knew enough to pass the test, but I didn't really know the dangers of this. Uh, until we got a, a manual for the, a new transmitter, and it showed all these areas on the schematic that were outlined in red, and it said, caution, death on contact. This was like, you know, 15,000 volts at several amps, which will just fry you real dead real quick. Shoot you across I, the room smoking. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so I went back to Dallas to uh, – um, a school. It was like one of those little DeVry kind of schools, Elkin Institute of Technology. And I got the equivalent of a, an associate's degree in digital electronics um, so that I would at least know what I'm doing in these radio stations. Well, as luck would have it, I didn't go back to radio, but I did go into stand-up comedy. And I can tell you the date that really changed my life was on March 17th of 1982, there was a place called the Comedy Corner in Dallas, and they had a, an open mic night. And their house comic was a guy named Bill Ingvall, who's gone to great fame with, uh, you know, uh, like Jeff Foxworthy in the Blue Collar Comedy Tour. And he was kind of becoming a comedian there, too. And he was the first one that said, hey, with all the voices and stuff you do, you, you should really try this. And I, so I started coming back week after week. And before too many months, I started doing a, a stand up comedy around Texas. Again, it was the greatest training ground because if you can do stand up, you can do anything. Let me ask you this question. Uh, when you went to that open mic night, 
I mean, yeah. did you have butterflies? Were you like, oh my oh, gosh, yeah. I, I'm going to get booed off the stage? I mean, what, what what was going through your head? And what did you do when you got up on stage that first time? Oh, well, I mostly did just impressions uh, and, and a few jokes. Just just a little five-minute thing of I don't even remember who I did impressions of. Probably, you know, like the Walter Brennan, the the Jimmy Stewart, the John Wayne, all of those celebrities at the time. And uh, just wrote a little routine for them. But yes, it's uh, very nerve wracking to go out on stage when you don't know what you're doing. And the first and, and five, months, five, five minutes is a long time. It is. I mean, that, that's like an doing. eternity, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> it seems like an eternity. Uh, eternity. And uh, but I did get a pretty good response. And I knew that if I didn't try this. I was going to kick myself later on because I maybe this is my way into show business. I had no idea. Well, I did that for several years and started traveling the country. I became a headliner. And just at the same time I started headlining, my an agent in Dallas said, well, with all the voices, why don't you go to Hollywood and see what you can do out there? Because that's where animation is. It's where voiceover is. It's the hub of everything. I got an apartment out in Hollywood, left my wife in Dallas. So I was going to, you know, just kind of commute for about a year, see what happens. About five months later, um, they came to me. My agent said, do you do any of the Disney characters? Because at the time there were four or five Mickeys and Donalds and Goofies. And and you, you might hear a different one down in Florida, Disney World or a Disneyland or a record album. And Michael Eisner and uh, Roy Disney wanted to, with the advent of the Disney Channel, which was brand new, you might see four or five different Mickeys in the same hour period. They wanted one voice for each of the main characters. So there was a big audition, Hollywood-wise. I didn't have any idea how big it was. I And Goofy was my favorite Disney character when I was a kid. And maybe that's why I had practiced the voice and kind of uh, became, I didn't do it on stage, but I, I, I could do it. And uh, out of, the, as I understand, nearly a thousand people or more tried out for that. And they picked mine to do a show called, uh, what was it? Uh, Disney's Doggone Valentine. January 23rd of 87 was the first time I actually did Goofy and you don't know if you're going to do it again. You don't know if they'll ever, you like it or whatever. Well, they called me again in about a month and then another month and another month and on and on. And now 36 years later, they, I think I have the job. Now, now let me, let me ask you this. Uh, I, I, I know exactly how you feel about that too. Uh, but let me ask you, did you know Pinto Kalvig? Uh, Pinto Kolvig, who was the original voice of Goofy. No, he passed away in the late 60s. Okay, so you um, had never met him. No, I had met some people who had done, and again, it was kind of like Goofy du jour during that time. So there were okay. several guys that had done that for the studio, but there was not really an official voice at that time until uh, I came along, and so I'm the uh, second official voice. And so I've been the only person that has done that voice, and along the way, Pluto and a bunch of other characters. Um, and so now I've done that, you know, exclusively on everything that they've done since 1987, really. It's, it's amazing. I, I'm just curious with, with Pinto. So after he passed away, it was just sort of a hodgepodge. They were yeah. just grabbing people who could kind of do Goofy's voice. Right. But, but there was no continuity. 
There yeah. was no continuity and there was, and and like you said, there was there was no presence of goofy. Right. The, the embodiment of Goofy, right? Right. You know, everyone's personality and take on the character might be a little bit different, so you're never going to get an exact match. You, as an actor, bring your personality into the role, and so you impart a little bit of you to that character, and I guess I was the, the closest one that they liked or they liked what I brought, and uh, off and running, I guess. And the rest is history. Well, that's the end of our interview, everybody. No, I'm <laughs> No, this is the first of two parts with Bill Farmer. I, I just want our listeners to know that. But but Bill, I want to step back for a second because yeah. before we get into all the Disney business, sure. I I really do. I'm I'm really fascinated uh, about the stand up uh, act and how that developed. And and if you could just talk a little bit about that. And you, obviously, you, you went from a five minute open mic to headlining. Yeah. How long is a headlining show? 20 minutes, uh, 30 minutes? They, most comedy clubs have a, a three act performance, usually an opener that'll do five to 10 minutes. Usually the newest person, someone who's just getting into it and they give them the first five minutes and we'll introduce the show. Hey, thanks for coming to the show and tell a few jokes. And now our middle act uh, is usually does about 20 minutes. Um, and then the headliner will do generally 45 to an hour. Wow. And uh, that that gets really long. Uh, that, that is an eternity <laughs> on stage. That is an eternity, isn't it? It it really is. But again, it it was the best training ever for uh, for voiceover and acting because you get an immediate response. If you're not funny, they let you know real quickly. Yeah. And you have to I tape my shows and I'd listen to uh the tapes and I go, oh, why didn't that joke work? What can I do to improve that? I'd either rewrite it, get a little snappier or whatever, and I'd try it again. And I figure after about three or four times, if it still didn't get a response, out it goes, even if I love the joke, leaving the stuff that did get the biggest response. And you kind of add to a little bit at a time to your routine and you build an act that way. You, you get those routines and those jokes that you know are going to work. They've always yeah. worked. You kind of center your uh, uh, routine around that and you add very, you know, a little bit at a time and you try them out and they become and a part of your act. When you get up on stage, do you have, do you have like a, you know, a cheat sheet? Do you have something taped on the floor? Is there a monitor in front of you that's no. giving you any kind of hint of what you're doing or is it all up in your head? It has to be all up in your head. Generally um, I've done plays and that's much more terrifying to me because I can kind of roll with it and I'll improv a little bit and ask people in the audience, hey, where are you from? What do you do for a living? And you can play around with that kind of stuff so that every performance is slightly different. You can take it in different places, whereas if you're doing a play, I've got a, you know, someone says, uh, who's at the door? Well, come in. And you've got to say the word come in or you're you're tied to that script much more than you are in stand-up. Right. It's been blocks or, or jokes, or like wife jokes or kid jokes or whatever, however you uh, make your routine, uh, you can play with it a little bit, whereas a play, you're kind of a bit set in iron. Yeah. I, you know, it, it, it's interesting. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I watched a, a Chris Rock uh, a special, you know, comedy special. And, and uh, it, it was uh, Al John, help me with the title. It was the the one that the newest one. It was oh, yeah. 
So yeah, I'll I'll, I'll look it up. I, yeah. I've anyway, never... <laughs> but 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 Chris Rock is up there, and yeah. he was doing a flawless uh, monologue and telling jokes and and whatnot. But at one point towards the end, he he blew a joke. Yeah, that happens. It and, is and and, and 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 he went back and he redid it. And they obviously edited it like a couple days later because it disappeared from from the show that was, you know, the the recorded version that was online. But but I was I was curious about, you know, for talking for 45 minutes, you really have to have some sort of a framework in your head as to what you're going to do. And and you deviate a little bit from that, depending on the audience. Right. Because you are playing to the audience. Right. And sometimes if you get a really good response and you have some more material that you might go in that direction. Uh, oh, the medical joke worked. And so I'll I'll do a couple more in that regard. See how that goes. So you can kind of try things and see what really hits with the audience and uh, kind of modify uh, your your act as you go along. And if you have a big, big backlog of material that you can choose from, um you know, that becomes much easier, uh, especially comebacks or whatever. You just get used to it. Um, whereas if it's, uh, you know, if all you have is that 45 minutes, which is what happened to me when I first started being a headliner. Um, yeah, that's that's what you got to do. That's your act. You, know, you can't really change it. First time I ever did uh, stand up as a headliner was actually at a club in Abilene, Texas, that the week before had been a strip club. <laughs> and and so they still had the, the pole on the stage where I was doing this. And I get up there and I do my 45 minutes and that's all the material I had of every joke I think I'd ever known. And I noticed that no one was moving out. They weren't kind of clearing it out for the second show. And I say, well, what, when are they going to bring in the people for the second show? And they're going like, oh, no, they, they just do something different because these same people, they're playing pool and they're just kind of <laughs> hanging around and they're upset that the strippers weren't there, I think. Uh, <laughs> it, it was so I had to do the same show twice. And so, yeah. When you're do when you do a show, and and I I know like you know obviously with the comedians today that travel a circuit and do theaters and whatnot, and you know somebody like Chris Rock or or uh, Jerry Seinfeld or whatever. Yeah. Um, but um, you are doing the same show each city, but you might change it up a little bit. Is right. really what I'm hearing from you, right? Yes, and uh, some of the greats, like I I know one of the ways that. Uh, like George Carlin would always do a tour and then he would just scrap everything. He would take a year or two to write a new whole show, and then take it out on, on, uh, on tour. Other people will maybe change a little bit here and there or just add jokes and then delete other ones as they become a little bit less relevant or whatever. And they kind of change and morph over time, but uh, different comics have different ways of working. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it's like any artist. Uh, there, there's no hard and fast rule to it. You right. know, actors, you know, uh, act, uh, you know, some are very, you know, immersive and, and you know, uh, live the part while they're doing it. And others don't do that, you know. Uh, but I, I'm curious, what about uh, hecklers? 
Do you oh. get a lot of hecklers at those kinds of shows? You can, yeah. Sometimes you'll, especially like uh, we would take like little, you know, fifty dollar a night gigs at bars that wanted to have a comedy night, and so yeah, you get a lot of drunks on those shows. <laughs> they can sometimes be a little bit harder to handle, but you do learn how to take care of yourself, and you have to have usually some material that uh, to, in you know just being ready for hecklers and that does happen didn't happen too often but it yeah. happened on occasion it, it does happen and i i know uh you you often hear stories but but when you watch some of these comedy specials on netflix and other other streamers uh the you can hear somebody shout something you know right. out or whatever uh and sometimes the the comedian will react to it uh -huh. in, in a funny way or they'll ignore it you yeah. know, uh, well, that's also planned out quite often because if you heckle right back to someone and the audience thinks that, well, that per person was just trying to add to the show, the the crowd might turn on you and be on the heckler side. Oh, boy. So one of the techniques is you let the heckler be annoying enough so whenever you do shut him down and heckle back or put him down or whatever – the crowd is on your side. It's a little psychology. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, but I'm imagining too, that it builds a thicker skin for you. Oh as yes. a Performer, right? It has to. Yeah. Yeah. As re rejection in voiceover acting showbiz in general. Yeah. Rejection is a big part of it. And you just kind of have to let it, uh, you know, just kind of, uh, like, like water off the duck's back, as they say. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Now, now do you, uh, do you still do stand up uh, uh, shows occasionally? I mean, is that something you miss doing? Is it something you want to do more of? I, I'm just curious. Well, um, I haven't in a, a, a year or so. Um, no, it's kind of like, it can be terrifying. Even at this age, I always got nervous before going out there. It never felt comfortable. Yeah. Um, I kind of did that and I prefer what I'm doing now, voiceover and, uh, and voice acting much more. Uh, so I'm glad that I didn't pursue that, uh, you know, and yeah, I, 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 I think I went the right, right way with my career. So <laughs> I don't miss it that much once in a great while I'll do a little set or something like that, but I'm glad I don't have to earn my, earn my, <laughs> my money that way anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I, what was the, what was the best experience you had doing stand up, and what was the worst oh. experience? Oh my gosh. Um, the, the best one, um, Gosh, any night where you just click, it just clicks. It's like seeing a concert that just, just kind of fulfills everything you imagine what it would be. And that high you get from that is just incredible that you're on cloud nine when it just goes perfectly or better, you get a really hot audience. And, uh, the 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 it, it's easy. I remember a couple of things that were the, the worst. I think I was doing a Christmas party for Safeway in Fort Worth, Texas. And right before I go up, and it was an after dinner speech, so all the employees are there. The head of Safeway gets up there, and this was for Christmas, and he basically said that there would be massive layoffs in January. <laughs> 
And now it's the comedy of Bill Farmer, you know. Oh and my gosh, my wife, you know, get the car running, you know. <laughs> uh, oh yeah. my gosh. That was tough. I had to do a uh, a breakfast once for the Alzheimer's people. And before they went on, they showed a slideshow of some of the people they'd lost to Alzheimer's the last year. And now, now the con, and that's right when they serve breakfast. And you just don't do that. You just don't perform while people are eating because you're hearing clanking, you know, plates and glasses and more, more tea, please, or whatever. It just, uh, yeah, it was rough. There are many, oh many gosh. of those. Oh, <laughs> sounds, sounds, sounds like my history playing music and rock and roll at these uh, private events. <laughs> yeah, back, you know, background comedy uh, is is just not not easy to do. <laughs> oh my gosh, I, you know, you got to walk away from some of those just shaking your head, going, "What yeah. am I doing?" Right? Oh, it can destroy you if you don't just say, "Okay, that okay, that happens." Then <laughs> just go on. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's something else. So, so you decide then because your agent prompted you to come out to to Hollywood to Los yeah. Angeles and and get an apartment before you got the voice of goofy were you doing other voiceover were you doing auditions for voices uh, I was of other doing characters? A few, I'd, I'd done a few commercials um I had uh and and just trying to break in which again that's very it's very hard difficult to do yeah, yeah. Because, Thousands, I think in LA now, there's probably 200,000 Screen Actors Guild members, and there's about 10,000 jobs on any given week. So, on any given week, there's a lot of out of work actors. It's an extremely competitive business. I had no idea. So, in my case, ignorance was bliss because I didn't know what I didn't know. And that's a very short time, uh, just about five months until the audition for Goofy came up. And of course, that was like everyone else was trying out for that. I had no idea of, uh, you know, what that could mean. And maybe maybe that allowed me to uh, just kind of not worry about it as much. I didn't know how big a deal it would be in my life or could be. And so you don't want to get your hopes up too much. So you don't, you know, stake your, you know, <laughs> mental well-being on this audition. And maybe that helped me. I don't know. But uh, it uh, turned out. But I'd done a couple of, I can't remember the the first movie I did out here was Background. I didn't do Goofy in it, but was in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And I did ADR, Background uh, Voices. Um, I'd done a couple of commercials. I think one I was doing a Johnny Carson impression. I was doing some announcements just like, you know, batteries not included. That kind of a <laughs> just those little and, things. And, 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 and back in that uh, back in those days when you were first starting out, you actually were going into a studio oh, to do that. Right. Because they yeah. didn't have the kind of digital gear and, and microphones and things like that that you have access to today to yeah. set up a home, a, a home studio. Right. Absolutely. Yes. And it was all on tape and it was uh, 
uh, in a studio because no one had the kind of technology that they did do now. And so it just wouldn't sound that good. So yes, it was going all over to different studios. And, and that's a little intimidating too, when you go in, because when you go in, you're usually in a room with a microphone, a chair, a mic stand, music stand with the script and everything. And the producers are on the other side of the glass and you can't really hear them. And you feel like you're under a microscope and in a way you are. And that is where the training in uh, stand-up, you know, taught me because I just thought, hey, this is easy compared to some of those live audiences like the Safeway thing. So <laughs> that kind of, <laughs> I say, well, how bad can this be? You know, if they don't like me, okay, but you know, no one's going to heckle me. So that was much better. And uh, um, yeah, we did actually that kind of recording till much, much later in my career. Uh, up we did our first series which we did uh, was called goof troop was ensemble we were all in the studio at the same time recording on a 24 track audio tape recorder um and that didn't change till much later actually let, let me ask you this when when you were first getting into the business out here and you were going to some of those studios it, it's got to be nerve-wracking to be in the booth and have the engineer shut the um the sound off to your headphones so you can't right. you can see people talking and using their hands behind the glass but you don't know what they're saying and yeah. you just you've just done a line and you don't know if they're saying what the heck is this guy saying yeah. or you know that does run through your head you're thinking yeah. this guy's terrible can we get someone else <laughs> and they're probably saying no i wanted ranch dressing on my salad or something like that so you never know but uh your mind goes to that dark place real quick <laughs> yeah yeah uh and i'm curious uh when when you were do, first starting out do, is that was there an uh a job that you did that uh you had to do just a ridiculous number of takes on oh yes commercials especially yeah because commercials have to be to the second and um you know, they, uh, it's an interesting from the uh, producer standpoint, usually there's an ad agency or something with a commercial that is trying to do, let's say we're doing a, you know, a, a soft drink spot or something like that, or McDonald's or something like that. Buy a Big Mac this weekend for only $2.95, you know, and that has to be done in 4.7 seconds. Okay. And okay. You do it about as fast as you can let, you know, uh, and you've got to trim it down, do it over. There are times when I've done as many as 80 takes on a simple line like that. I know that the ad agency has to please the client, the, the McDonald's people or whoever. So the ad agency, they had me do it over and over and over and over. And they probably took take number two, you know, <laughs> cover their, cover their, uh, all potential uses of this, uh, dialogue and the ways that you can possibly do it. You do it over and over and over and over again, but you just got to get used Wait, to hold it. On. Control room, control room here. Uh, Bill, could we have you do it faster and more at B please? more energy more I'm energy in the right now or the weekend okay saturday only you know we got it <laughs> uh bill can you do that again but with a smile <laughs> yes, okay. yes, go into McDonald's today. You know, <laughs> that's the kind of thing you do. <laughs> yeah, and, and uh, and some of the studios are very nice, and others are like their closets, right? 
Yes, you you can't tell you can't tell as long as the engineers know what they're doing and as long as they have the equipment and that can record you the way you can usually get through. But you know, I've I've been in where they didn't have headphones or I had to share the microphone with another actor because they just had one microphone. Wow. Or little things like that. Or you get a chair that squeaks, so you have to stand up. And you had to think about your clothing because if you use the wrong clothing, it can make like, you know, uh, quarter, something sounds. like that. Crunchy stuff. Yeah. yeah. These are things you have to think about when you go in there. But and, and also your stomach growling. Oh, that could yeah, right. Be, oh, yeah. I didn't have lunch so before. I your lips or, you know, there's so many little things that you have to think about. Um, that's gotten a whole lot easier over the years. You still have to worry about smacking your lips and the clothes and stuff, but that's, that's not as big a deal as it was. Right. Right. And, uh, so, you know, getting, getting along here with your, uh, career. And I, I want to spend a little bit of time on that process of, uh, and you, you of any, out of anybody knows, knows the history when Michael Eisner and Roy Disney yeah. wanted to bring continuity to the voices. Right. Um, and they set up the, the character voice department. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. What, 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 what's its official title now? It was still Disney character voices. Oh, okay. The, uh, and they mostly handle uh, like translations. Like they'll take the programs we do now and, and translate it into 50 some different languages for around the world markets. But, but they have, they have like 50 different uh, goofies in those yes. languages that they've already sort of identified. That's our person in Japan or that's right. our person in Vietnam. Right. And for every movie that comes out, like when let's say frozen came out, they had to find all of those characters in about 50 different languages. So yeah. to, to put the movie around the world. So what was the, uh, so, you know, because you were there so early on, what, 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 uh, give us a little behind the scenes history of that character voices forming. When did, when did Rick Dempsey who heads up the group come in and all of that? Well, Rick Dempsey, who uh, uh, he came in about two or three years after I had gotten the role of goofy. Uh, Les Perkins was the guy that was running it and was actually looking to consolidate uh, for Michael Eisner and Roy Disney. They wanted to, they made a case that, yes, you should always hear the same character, especially with the advent of the Disney Channel. And you can see an old cartoon, a new cartoon, uh, a show at Disneyland, a show at Disney World. You should hear the voice, oh, the same voice, because it's very noticeable when there's a different actor doing a voice. I realized that when I was a kid, when the voice of Fred Flintstone passed away, Alan Reed, and they got another guy. And I just knew, okay, it sounds like Fred, but there's something different. And it's people know that. People yeah. get to know these characters, and especially these very iconic characters like the Disney characters. Um, people can feel the difference, even if they can't hear the difference. They know something's not right. Yeah, they can't put their finger on it, but they know. They right. know something's off. Yeah. Right. And so part of it's not only just voice matching, it is the acting, the personality, the soul of the character is what you really have to master. And that was actually harder than the voice, um, because uh, on some characters that I do, it's 
a creation. I come up with the voice myself. Other ones, Goofy's been around for 90 years since 1932. Right. I had to fill those shoes. I had to do it like Pinto Colvig did yeah. and uh, try and keep it as close in the beginning to that. So there's kind of a seamless transition between what he did and what I do. Yeah. And, and, and I'm just wondering uh, it, it, when that, so the, the Disney character voices when it first formed. So it was Les Perkins who was in charge. Yes. And so he, he ultimately was, was he the person that picked you or, or was it a committee? It was a uh, Roy Disney and Michael Eisner. They listened to all of, especially for the, what we called the fab five, Mickey, Minnie, Donald, Goofy, Pluto. And um, so that they, they, they picked us. Yeah. Out of all of the auditions that came in. And, and was, was it sort of a blind picking? In other words, like uh, they, they went to them and said, here's A, B, C, D, and E. You know? I would think so. I <laughs> wasn't, I wasn't privy to that. So I don't know exactly, <laughs> but uh, I think, and Harry, here's a guy, Bill Farmer, who d- does it. It could have been A, B, C, D. That'd probably be a little bit easier to do a blind audition like that and just oh that third guy I like him whoever that is awesome you know so you get the job yeah but but it's a tentative thing because oh, yeah. they're, they're like okay we want you to do this this project and then we'll call you back for something else in a few weeks yeah. uh what most people don't realize that I've never been a Disney employee of the company. I've always been an independent contractor. That's the way it works. Um, None of us voice people are. So every job still to this day is a different contract. It's like they need me. They bring me in. I'm like the plumber. I come in, I do a job, I go home. Um, and so after that first job, I was, I was elated. I got to do my favorite Disney character, but I didn't want to get my hopes up that they would use me again. Cause I had no idea what the future held. I didn't know if they were going to do any more cartoons. I didn't know what they were going to do. It wasn't until later on. And I got a series named goof troop, which is the first like ongoing thing that I did for the company that, okay, I think this is going to turn into something. This is pretty cool. You know, this, this might be something. Well, after you did that first job as uh, doing the voice of goofy, were you still doing other things? Were you doing commercials and little, Oh yeah. I still doing stand up, and it was for the first probably half a year to a year that I was still out on the road doing stand-up for my major income. And then occasionally, every month or so at the most, Disney would call to do a a goofy uh, project. And occasionally, my wife would say, you know, they'd call and they'd say, uh, well, we need Bill tomorrow for doing a, a cartoon. Well, he's up in Seattle. He's doing a, a stand-up comedy routine at the club up there, and he'll be back on Monday. And then they would say, well, if he's not available, we might have to get someone else to do that. And so I said, I'll quit. I'll quit. <laughs> I'll quit the stand-up. I'll be available. And so in the early years, yes, it was kind of staying close to the phone, hoping that they would call and go in when they did. And, 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 and you could you couldn't have done it up in Seattle at that point. No, not at that time. No. Okay, yeah, um, they just didn't have the capacity yeah. to do it over the wires, so so to speak. Yeah, that has changed over the years, but in those days, yes, I had to be right here in the valley. So. Yeah, yeah, and and did were you doing any stand up in Los Angeles? 
Yes, at the uh, uh, comedy, uh, the improv and the uh, uh, comedy store were the two big ones. Right. And I went up there on open mic nights, kind of, you know, just to kind of work out new material to, you know, you didn't get paid for that, but you just kind of signed up in the uh, late afternoon, which was the same way it was in Dallas. We'd sign up about three or four in the afternoon and we'd find out when and if we got on that night at about seven. So you're just waiting in line a long time to get your five minutes of uh, fame. And, and you might not get up there, right? That's true. And, well, you and might was go it on at after midnight? You oh, know? okay. And, and, and was that because the 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 club manager or owner was picking and choosing who was going up to the mic? It was usually first come first served. Oh, That's okay. you waited in line so long so that when they did the sign up, okay, you're first, you're second, you're third. It was usually your place in line. You lined up. First guy got to go up first. Second guy on the open mic nights when anyone could go up. The other nights of the week, there was a, a headliner they'd bring in and it was a regular show. On Tuesday nights, it was all of us local guys that wanted to give it a shot. My gosh. And, and what was that sort of a revolving door of people? Like, did you ever see the same people over and over again that you became friends with? Or did you just see a lot of people showing up? They try it. They they'd lose it on stage oh, yeah. and say, I'm never doing this again. Oh, yeah, that happened a lot. Yeah, <laughs> there were a, a group of us, probably about five to seven that became very good friends. One of my my best friend now is still I met him standing in line that March 17th of 82. He's still one of my uh, uh, best friends. And uh, yeah, so I still know them. Uh, and I know a lot of them and, and keep in touch from time to time. And then there were other people that would come in and we always knew when which guy was going to bomb because they'd always say, ah, I haven't really written anything. I'm just going to go up there and kind of uh, improv something. And he didn't have anything really prepared. And we know, okay. And in our minds, we're going to, let's go watch this guy bomb, you know? <laughs> wow. Wow. And that, some of those, there was a lot of one timers. Yeah. 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 They were doing it on a dare or they just thought I, I that looks easy. I could do that. You know, my mom tells me I'm funny, right? That's that, exactly. <laughs> it. <laughs> that, that is that, that, in and of, that in and of itself had to have been funny to watch. It, it was, it was, you know, we'd pick the guys. Oh, this guy's good. Oh, that girl's good. Oh, this guy really stinks. If he comes back next week, we'll be surprised. <laughs> Sometimes they would, and they'd maybe last two or three weeks. An awful lot of them were out the first night though. Now, let me ask you this. Did you work with anybody early on in the comedy circuit that became, you know, a mega star? Oh yeah. Um, Gosh, yeah, over the years, um, Houston especially had a great range of um, of comics that went on to, um, you know, stardom, um, like, uh, well, Bill Ingvall was our house comic, uh, and he went on to great fame, and uh, uh, Sam Kennison was out of uh, Houston. Yeah. He was starting about the same length of time. There was... Uh, Gosh, I'm trying to remember some of the other names, but there were a lot. And you, we always got to talk with the comedians who were the headliners and kind of watch their show, kind of learn what they're doing. 
and um, got a lot of feedback from them if they sat around and would watch our show and say, well, what do you, what you need to do is be, be make it more personal, uh, do more personal kind of stuff or whatever they were into. Roseanne Barr, I knew her. Uh, Tim Allen, I worked with in Houston for before he was famous. Yeah. And, um, you he's know, a nice, he's a nice guy. I, yes, I, had not, I had an opportunity to meet, meet him, uh, a couple of times. He, he was a really very, uh, gracious individual. Very nice. Yeah. yeah. And you get to know these guys. Cause when you're out on, uh, the rounds, let's say I'm going to Houston quite often, they'll put you up in a, uh, either a hotel or they have an apartment in some hotel or an apartment complex where it's just for the, the comics that week. And yeah. so you're kind of stuck in the room with them. Hopefully you like them uh, and you're there for the week or however long you're there and you get to know them pretty well over a week. Uh, I mean, you know, Sam, Sam Kennison's no longer with us, but, right. but he was known for screaming. Yes. Did, did, did he ever, did he ever advise you to scream more? <laughs> no, that's his style. Uh, there was a guy, Bill Hicks, who has, was a good friend. He, uh, they didn't, they would just say maybe little hints, but not style, not stylish yeah. type of uh, hints. Like his style is his style. And he got that from his family were evangelists. And he got that from the evangelistic, you know, kind of thing in the, the revival tents and all of yeah. that stuff that he did. Um, but usually you just kind of picked up it's it it's more of a, a music to the way people say something. The old old line is, you know, you can say something, say something funny, or, or what do you, what is it? You say funny things or say something funny. In other words, there are comedians that just whatever they say sounds funny. Yeah. It's timing. It's that timing and and character that they have, and developing that's a big part of it, really. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what? Uh, we're bumping up against time on our first part here. Uh, I When we come back next week, Bill, if you don't mind, I really want to dive into the whole goofy thing and, oh, and all of the ins and outs of that and and, and just sort of step through the, the decades with you because you've been doing it darn near four decades. That's true. Yeah. Which is really yeah. amazing. But this, I, I love hearing about, your early years and the radio stations and the, and the comedy clubs and stuff. And, and so I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to getting into the meat on the, the Disney bone, so to speak. Yeah. All of that stuff that we just talked about was kind of leading up to my goofy years. All right. Well, next week we're going to talk all about the goofy years. So Stay tuned. I enjoy the green room. There's a sleeping bag in there for you. Oh, good. It's like and, a lot of the comedy yeah, club. Yeah, and we've got a lot of, like, candy and cookies and stuff on the table. Okay, so help yourself to that. And I'll clean up after I, uh, uh, you know, take a nap. So. <laughs> All right. I appreciate that. All right. We'll see you next week. Thanks, Bill. Your attention, please. <laughs> now loading on track number one for a trip around Walt Disney's Magic Kingdom. Skull Rock Podcast. All aboard. Your Main Street to the world of Disney. Oh, man, the stories Bill can tell. Uh, I love the fact that he started in radio. It's fascinating because we have a lot of that in common. Yeah, you know, I I, I do too. But and, and, you know, I love 
hearing the stories of our guests early years, mm-hmm. you know, the, those formative years of how they got into the business and, and the fact that, you know, his stand up uh, and some of the stories he was telling about the stand up uh, uh, acts he was doing. It's just fantastic. Yeah. A lot of people don't realize that, but I think it's great that he cut his teeth and was humbled and, and continues to be humble because he paid his dues. He paid his dues the right way. And I think a lot of people don't realize the types of dues a lot of the entertainers, a lot of the people that work in film and animation had to do, uh, much like a struggling musician where they're trying to find their footing and find their voice. And then when they are striving for that record deal, I mean, Bill went through all the same kind of trials and tribulations. And I think that some of this new generation have no idea what kind of trials and tribulations really are um, when you're paying your dues in the industry. So, yeah. And, and and you know something uh, he's, I just, I love talking with him. He's such a nice guy. And, uh, and his wife, Jennifer is also really terrific. I mean, we we've had a a lot of occasions to spend time with them uh, over the years prior to the pandemic. And uh, it's just so great. And I can't wait for us to share part two of this interview next week. I absolutely love it. I love it. So next week, yes, we'll be back with legendary Bill Farmer, Disney legend. And uh, looking forward to that. Gang, we know that you love Disney. We know that you love pop culture. Why don't you consider subscribing to the show? You made it all the way to this, uh, to the end. We would love to have you subscribe and click that bell for notifications on our social media on Facebook, especially when we post new content. We would appreciate it. Follow Dave and myself and Skull Rock Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, individually on LinkedIn, Instagram. Uh, be sure you tell your friends about us like and subscribe to our show give us those five star reviews i'd like to thank our friends there at the source of radio network for continuing to promote our show and giving us a platform to uh, branch out for all these great listeners that we have here and also uh, this week i'll send a shout out to the disney dorks too because they allow us to promote uh, over there to their disney community i know uh, dave you're we're friends with so many people in so many different places like laughing place and things like that 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 allow us to kind of promote and do stuff so Thanks to all those great Disney groups out there. And uh, you can follow me, Al John uh, Go, on Instagram and my sister show, the uh, Dining at Disney podcast. We release two shows a week. And uh, we just got done talking about Ravello this week and their new menu. So hopefully, if you love Disney food, you'll check that show out. Dave, you've got the final word. Well, as always, uh, please go out and have a fantastic week. And we'll see you next Monday right here on the Skull Rock Podcast. Mm-hmm.